I'm Matthew Moore, and you're listening to In His Name, the Deluxe Edition. It's obvious that to have a podcast about Donald Trump, I needed to interview someone who has written extensively about Donald Trump. I was drawn to Gwenda Blair because she has not only written about Trump, but about both his father and his grandfather. The deep knowledge of what formed him made her a very appealing source to interview. Because of the way the podcast came to be laid out, much of our conversation was left on the cutting room floor, and I'm really excited to get a chance to share our full conversation. It's worth noting that our Zoom call involved her being in a remote spot with super subpar internet, so you'll hear some digital stuttering periodically. That's your fair warning. If you haven't yet, make sure to subscribe to the newsletter. Think of it like the annotated notes of the conversation. You can find notes about this conversation and all of the past ones, and of course, all the future ones. Link is in the show notes. Okay, here's my interview with Gwenda Blair. If you don't mind by starting with uh, your name and your title, and then we'll kind of get going from there. Gwenda Blair, author of The Trumps, Three Generations of Builders and a President, also adjunct professor, Columbia Graduate School of Journalism. And can you give me a little bit of background on your research? How did you get, how did you get started writing about the Trumps and the Trump family? I lived in New York at the time. I had lived there for many decades. And was really kind of taken with trying to understand how Donald Trump, this, by the way, was the end of the late 1980s, how he had managed to become such a uh, prominent figure in New York City. He seemed to me a little like a kind of latter-day version, a little, like a latter-day version of Robert Moses uh, in his impact, not so much on the built environment, actually, although he did, Donald Trump did build some buildings, but his kind of cultural and social impact. Uh, He was hardly the only self-promoter in New York, far from it, but his grasp of the importance of branding and how important, critical actually, it was to get as big as possible, as fast as possible. And the way he went about that, which was to be in one's face 24 seven, and this was before the internet, before Twitter, but he really did it a full court, an impressive full court press with being, getting as much ink as he possibly could. He would do things like interrupt other people's press conferences. He would make phone calls to reporters and represent himself as his own press representative. He did everything he could. He went on a giant spending spree through the 1980s and bought an airline and a football team and a world's 
sixth largest yacht or possibly second. I could never really track that down one or the other. Anyway, pretty darn big. Uh, he had three casinos. He wrote at a pretty young age, he wrote kind of a memoir uh, or had a ghostwriter write it. I mean, he was just doing everything you could to project business tycoon, magnate, success, luxury, super luxury, and getting as big as he possibly could. And I wrote the book in a way to explore why and how. In, in your book, you, you actually talk uh, almost more at length about his father and his grandfather. Um, but let's start with Donald as a child. What was his family like when he was a child? What, um, what kind of environment did he grow up in? Donald Trump grew up in Jamaica Estates, which was the kind of, kind of posh neighborhood in Queens, one of the outer boroughs. And he was um, fourth youngest, uh, fourth from the top in a family of five children. His father was a very successful uh, real estate uh, figure. A contractor had built thousands of units of middle-income housing, some houses, but um, after the New Deal and the federal government and eventually the state government underwriting and subsidizing middle-income housing, Donald Trump's father, Fred, had made a vast fortune out of this part of the real estate world. So the Trumps lived in the biggest house in the neighborhood. They had the... uh, the family had Cadillacs, they had a chauffeur, they had a living cook, the children went to private school. It was a very um, well-resourced uh, childhood. Um, and also one where dad worked 24-7, you're awake, you're working, uh, and mom seems to have been quite subordinate. Dad seems to have been the guy who laid down the law, very tough, very strict, um, and trained the boys to be tough, told them to be killers, to win, only be winners. And um, it was uh, a very uh, 50s childhood. When we look at Donald Trump's childhood, did Christianity or religion, for that matter, really play a role in his upbringing at all? When Donald Trump was a kid, the family went to a neighborhood Presbyterian church. Donald and his siblings were went to Sunday school there, were, I believe, confirmed there. But in the ni- Donald was born in 1946. In 1952, a book was published with the title The Power of Positive Thinking by a minister named Dr. Norman Vincent Peale. It was a huge bestseller, enormous audience. Dr. Norman Vincent Peale was the pastor of a church in Manhattan, the Marble Collegiate Church. 
And although Donald probably didn't read it when it first came out, since he was six, his parents were very influenced by it and changed their allegiance from that neighborhood Presbyterian church to, in Queens, to the Marble Collegiate Church in Manhattan, attended services. Eventually, Donald and his sisters were married there. The parents' funerals were there. And what was so appealing about the power of positive thinking? It was a kind of a, a guide to the notion that if you believed enough in your, yourself being successful, you could do just about anything. One of uh, Norman Vincent Peale has a list near the beginning of kind of 10 guidelines. And the first one, which I think I have to paraphrase because I don't quite remember it, was something like um, create a picture in your mind of yourself as success. Hold to it tenaciously. And tenaciously is the word he used. Never let it go. Never let the idea of failure enter your mind. And certainly Fred Trump was the very model of that approach. And he apparently enormously energetic guy, uh, hyper energetic, on the move all the time. And uh, Donald certainly inherited that um, energy uh, from his dad. What Norman Vincent Peale didn't say was obliterate your opponents, <laughs> destroy anyone who gets in your path. That was something that Donald Trump added sort of as a corollary. So Trump graduated from college and immediately went to work for his father in the Trump organization. By 1971, he had taken over as president of the company. Um, was he seen as a good businessman early in his career? Well, his father had been a very good businessman, which had been able to squeeze every penny out of all those abatements and very little debt. Quite a lot of cover, I would say. He also, the father also had very significant to, uh, to get started. And he was, I think, thought of himself as enormously successful. In fact, then, and even up until this day, it has never really entered his mind, that is Donald's, that he would be anything other than successful. I think a more objective accounting of how he did in those years would come up a little differently. But what he was successful at, no doubt about it, no question, was projecting the idea of success, of projecting the idea of absolute absolute, you know, invincibility, that he could do anything and that it would work. And part of how he did this, certainly, was he, that notion of bigness, of being a celebrity, of somehow just being so important and so significant and so big that he just kind of rolled over things, rolled over other people. And his grasp that the bigger you were, the fewer questions anyone would ask and the more you could get away with. Yeah. 
really puts the confidence in like the con artist element of it, right? That that if you portray enough confidence Mm -hmm. that people have no choice but to believe what you say, right? Precisely. He, he absolutely, again, very early on realized that you could really pretty much brazen your way through a lot more than most people realized. Also early on, he met up with what I kind of refer to as there were three, the three schools that Donald Trump was influenced by school. Number one, school of Fred, his dad, very tough businessman, very shrewd, always, always as much as possible for him, as little as possible for everybody else. Number two, school of Norman Vincent Peale. And number three, school of Roy Cohn. Those were the three major influences. And early in Donald Trump's career, in fact, a year after he took over the business, he met Roy Cohn. uh, And it was just after the Trump organization had been served with papers in a lawsuit, a federal lawsuit charging discrimination, racial discrimination in housing. And Fred had actually encountered a similar situation some years earlier and had dealt with it sort of quietly by uh, making it go away. Not Donald. Donald conferred with his new acquaintance, Roy Cohn, and within days, they had a press conference, this time it was his own press conference, announcing that the Trump Organization was suing the federal government for $100 million, which even then was a very a colossal amount of money. Even now, it's kind of a big chunk of change, but then that was a colossal amount of money and suing it for defamation. Well, yeah, it's interesting that you led perfectly into my next question. I was going to ask about that specific case. Um, This was in 1973. Uh, The Department of Justice charged him, he and his father, with violating the Fair Housing Act um, for 39 different buildings that they owned. Well, Donald Trump has claimed numerous times that he is not racist and even recently claiming that he's the least racist person that he knows. Do you believe him when he says that? Everything to Donald Trump is transactional. Everything, up to and including breathing, I think, but certainly everything. So, of course, he's racist, but it doesn't, it matters, but in, it matters a lot. But in some sense, he's, the the way to understand him is, the only way that anything, the only um, way that he evaluates anything is whether it's to his advantage. That's it. So he would be a freedom fighter if that was to his advantage. He would be, no, he would be an astronaut. He would be whatever if it was to his advantage. But it has been to his advantage to be a racist. And in that early, in those early years when they were doing housing, uh, ha- discriminating in their housing pol- in their rental policies and housing, sure they were racist. Uh, when Charlottesville happened, he wanted to hold on to voters who were racist. He said they're good people on both sides. I mean, he's it's just strict. That's the only bright line. Is it to his advantage? So it it sounds like you would view it as 
he's racist because it's convenient for moving his message forward, not because he intrinsically thinks less of people of color. Is that fair to say? I think he's completely amoral. Hmm. I think the only person that matters is him Hmm. and anybody named Trump. Uh, That's it. That's it. So, well, speaking of people named Trump, uh, he, he got married to Ivana in 1977, had three children with her, Don Jr., Ivanka, and Eric. What was his relationship with Ivana, and what did that look like? One of the ways that he has branded himself as uh, this a celebrity bigger than life, enormously successful business tycoon, is to have a tall model on his arm uh, at every possible occasion, Uh, mostly blonde. Um, All three wives have been models. Uh, It's part of his physical presentation, his kind of alpha male, uh, the persona that he's implying and proving by having these gorgeous women on his arm uh, and as kind of arm candy. And so Ivanka, sorry, Ivana, certainly, you know, Czech (laughs) was a model, tall, very, you know, head turning. Why models? Because these are women who are trained to turn heads. I mean, they walk, they, they know how to do the walk how to walk in, how to everybody, you know, pay attention. This was a very important piece to him. Uh, So that was part of the attraction. She was also as absolutely transactional and ambitious as he was. Could match him, you know, uh, you know, tactic for tactic. And it turned out ultimately that her idea was that she would be kind of like the co-pilot. He didn't want a co-pilot. He wanted to be the pilot, and that didn't end up working out. Yeah, you even talk about how he wasn't looking for a partner. He was looking for a concubine. Um, and and that, that element really stuck out to me that, you know, he he wasn't looking for someone who could, you know, when 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 people traditionally look for a partner, they're looking for someone who can, you know, help them when they're in need that can, you know, be offer some sort of um, help in situations. But for him, it was strictly, as you said, this, this element of arm candy, this element of like, be here when I need you and go away when I don't need you. Does that sound fair? I think that was fair. I think there's also a certain, you know, hardly unusual. Uh, He was, he was looking for, someone rather more like his mother who had been in the background, subordinate, took care of the kids uh, when dad was at work, uh, when dad was away, he was the, you know, enforcer. She was the one at home. And I think he was looking for something like that he kind of made a mistake in his first marriage and he married somebody more like dad who was a workhorse, very ambitious, 
wanted to be at the construction site with him and to order everybody around, that that was the wrong parent. <laughs> the subsequent marriages, whatever else they may have been, were women who were not going to get out in front of him. According to some reporting from the New York Times, he was floating the idea of running for president as early as 1987. Um, in the 1988 election, we had just come out of eight years of Reagan, who was an extremely popular president. George H.W. Bush was running on the Republican side. Michael Dukakis was running on the Democratic side. Bush went on to win 80 percent of the states um, and was easily easily elected. What would motivate Trump to have entered that race? He had just recently published his first book, his first co-authored, ghosted book, um, The Art of the Deal. And as much as anything, it was kind of uh, running the idea up the flagpole of running for president, um, campaigning a little bit, getting some bumper stickers printed, going to New Hampshire. That was, as much as anything, kind of a publicity thing for his the book. Uh, but it did... He's somebody who has always believed that he could do anything better than anybody else. Um, he, I remember uh, one of the architects I talked to who worked on um, very early on with him um, said that he would come into his office and Trump would already be there looking at drawings. And he said he would talk a mile a minute he was convinced he knew more than anybody else. Um, and that's not stopped, actually. Uh, so sure, he would be president. You know, why not? Uh, it, didn't, it, it didn't go very far then or really any of the other times. And there were a lot <laughs> leading up to 2016. But each time it was a little, it got a little further and a little a little more serious about it <laughs> yeah a little more serious and a little more into the idea and a little more perhaps uh you know confident and um sure that he could do a better job than anybody else and started you know once in a while in 88 he had an, a full page newspaper a couple of full page newspaper ads and there's a kind of a but it just didn't really ever go very far. But kept wasn't until around until well into the two thousands that it began to it began to kind of pick up steam. In your book, you describe you describe a scene from the funeral of Donald's father, Fred, uh, in nineteen ninety nine, and some of some of his siblings had offered eulogies, recounting fond memories that they had of their father. But you say that when it was Donald's turn to speak, he spent his time patting himself on the back and promoting himself. You say, quote, that day did not belong to Fred Trump after all. It belonged to Donald. What do you hope an anecdote like that uh, tells the listeners about Donald Trump? At what many people might consider one of the most solemn moments of their lives the funeral of a parent, it was to Donald Trump all about Donald Trump, about me, mine, I, 
and his accomplishments, uh, not about the lessons he'd learned from his dad or the other children. There's a favorite poem and a couple of anecdotes, not Donald. It was about how he, Donald, had been on the front page of the New York Times, I, I think that day or the week before, maybe, uh, and um, how, what a significant figure he was, how powerful and successful he was, which charitably you might maybe sort of kind of see as a tribute to his father and perhaps sort of kind of maybe he thought about it that way a little bit, but <laughs> he certain that wasn't what he said. What he said was all about himself. What does that, what does that, what should that tell people about him as a person? That even in this moment that we often think of, you know, a funeral or a eulogy being a moment of reflection or a moment of grief. What, that's, those weren't the emotions that, that, that Donald Trump was portraying during that time, or at least not, not, you know, not verbally expressing those sorts of emotions, right? Au contraire. It was, it was, that was in no way what he seemed to be embodying. Uh, We must recall that this was in 1999 and his fortunes were not in the best shape. Donald's, that is. Uh, He had already gone through several corporate bankruptcies uh, connected to his casinos in Atlantic City. Things, each time he managed to emerge with a smaller stake uh, in his enterprises there, he was still a goring concern, but the bright, shining, always up, trajectory of 10 years earlier was a bit dimmed. Um, And so, among other things, all the more need to project total self-confidence, unwavering faith that he was at the top of his game, Uh, which I think would he... (laughs) If his father died at some other period, would he have said something else? We can't know. What we do know is what he said when his father died then. And there was, it wasn't just his own innate notion of himself. There was a strategic piece here. There's always a strategic piece with him. It's always a calculus. It's always what's to his advantage. That's always the case. So in 2004, uh, the Apprentice airs for the first time on NBC, featuring Donald Trump as a real estate mogul and star of the show. What impact did this have on him and on his brand? This was the gift of gifts for him, perhaps second to being born to a, a father who already had an enormously successful business. That was a pretty lucky break. The second super lucky break, there have been some other ones, but certainly among the most important lucky breaks for him was The Apprentice because it it picked up on that 
brand that Trump had indeed developed as being this mega tycoon and took it forward. It had, it had dipped. It was a little tarnished, but picked it right back up, dusted it off and went up like a rocket ship because now Donald Trump was in people's, not just in New York, not just a um, builder, he was a TV star. And that exponential increase in his uh, name recognition, already very high, but exponential increase in that and his being um, defined as this business genius, remarkable acumen who was always, every week, um, dispensing wisdom like location, 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 really cliches, but they were treated by the show as like pearls of wisdom. And he was getting in and out of a helicopter or walking in and out of a skyscraper with his name on it. So he was constantly seen in this extremely flattering uh, light. And it's reality TV, which as we all know, two minutes in, you forget that and you think it's real. So people would watch these scenarios in which job applicants would compete against each other, uh, doing nonsensical tasks, actually, and um, being, and Donald Trump would at the end step in and pull out of the air some reason why somebody should be fired, which actually had nothing to do with the performance. It's tape edited make look like that person should be fired. That had nothing to do with what had happened, but who cared? Uh, it was all structured to make Trump seem like incredibly insightful. He zeroes in on the flaw. He came off as, you know, King Solomon. Hmm. That's a that's a very a, a good way of, of of kind of framing it in the sense of like the, the evangelical world is as someone who is wise beyond his years. Uh, yeah. And King Solomon is is the utmost you know authority in the Proverbs and in you know in the Old Testament. So uh, I appreciate that reference. Both those first the book, then the TV series. If you step back. A few feet, a few yards. Uh, Each one of them kind of celebrates a sort of shrewdness, a kind of cunning, and basically cheating, stealing, lying, whatever you have to do to get the deal. And they're presented as acceptable behavior in the book. It's kind of clever he's this kind of off you know uh un, uh untraditional way of doing things you know he cuts through problems he's he does it he does it his own way um but it's presented as you know it worked so who cares what kind of moral and ethical uh things were involved collateral damage net effect doesn't matter. It's all about winning. And The Apprentice has exactly the same 
kind of perspective, these candidates are encouraged to backstab, to uh, cut each other's throats, to cheat, lie, steal. They're encouraged to do that. And whoever, you know, and people are thrown overboard because they weren't very, the ones who weren't very good at it. Right. Well, and this is the early days of reality TV, too, that like really at the time we have Survivor and maybe a few others. But, you know, it, it was essentially seen as like, you know, a business white collar version of Survivor in a lot of ways that it was like, do whatever it takes, make whatever deals you have to make in order to keep moving forward week after week. And even though this is like a fictionalized, you know, like set piece <laughs> of reality, this was in a lot of ways his actual reality, right? Well, it was and it wasn't. He certainly had no scruples ever about doing anything. So that was certainly the case. What's what's not really, I think, adequately grasped is that he always had a cushion. He had his dad's giant fortune. His dad bailed him out. He had his dad's financial connections. He had his dad's political connections. Uh, he had he had a lot of insulation. He was never in danger. Nothing was ever at stake for him in any, you know, survivor way. He was, he was never um, faced with anything even slightly drastic uh, in terms of his future and his survival. So that, uh, that is kind of missing that he, he started out as the cliche goes on third base (laughs) <laughs> but he thought, and then he thought he hit a home run. That's been said about many people, and it's certainly true of him. And he really thinks that he did it himself. He thinks that he went to the lumber yard, made the bat himself, yeah. built the stadium, yeah. put all the fans in the crowd, and encouraged the pitcher to throw him the hardest pitch that he could throw and still managed to hit a home run. <laughs> yeah, even though, you know, it was, well, there were a lot of fixes in all along the way. Uh, and, but that's uh, how he uh, he grew up in that world, and he he's been in that world ever since. The twenty twenty election is the first thing he's ever lost, and as we all know, in his mind, he didn't lose it. <laughs> and I do believe that. I do believe that he thinks he didn't lose it because he can't not believe that. So. For a lot of folks, really the first interaction that we have of Trump as pursuing a political career was in 2011 when he uh, started to go on media tours to outlets like The View on ABC and on Fox News to spread the lie that Barack Obama was born outside of the United States. Can you walk us through a little bit of this birther conspiracy and, and what drew Donald Trump to this idea? Well, he didn't invent it. He didn't think it up. He wasn't the first person to uh, try and pitch it. But he saw its promise. He saw that it, this, there was a constituency for that. And there was, uh, were already some people who seemed to think that that was probably true. Uh, and or quite a few people. And that he saw that it was a way to appeal to a 
anti-immigrant sentiment and a racist sentiment without saying so. It was a way to make Barack Obama other, to underscore his other, to make a capital O other, not one of us, not even the same nationality as us, actually, uh, alien, other. This was a really diabolical way to do that. And he got out in front of it, ran it up, uh, what was already underway, tried it out, got a huge response, took a sharp turn right, because he was never, prior to that, especially in New York City, it, would not, it was not to his advantage to be a hard right winger. But by then, he wasn't really building anything anymore. He was basically licensing his name uh, and he'd, his real income stream had, in recent years had come off The Apprentice. And so he didn't have to appeal to a New York audience anymore or a, a kind of a New York base so much. It, that was no longer the case. And when he got that response, that that was it. Well, and it's interesting, too, because, you know, there tends to be this this, um, you know, when you're when you're someone who presents a conspiracy theory, a lot of times and we've seen it, you know, over however many years there's been conspiracy theories. There's always this element of like, well, I'm just saying. You know, there's there's always this, you know, like I don't I don't know this to be true, but I'm going to espouse it as though it is the gospel, but I'm going to leave some room to say, like, well, it's worth asking questions, right? And this kind of becomes his his MO of of consistently coming up with ideas that aren't really all that based in reality, and is essentially saying something to the degree of, well, you know, some people are saying. Right. And this is really the first iteration of that that we see with Barack Obama. And and I wonder what is the impact? What is the impact for Donald Trump when Barack Obama has to go into his own press room and present the long form version of his birth certificate? Like what's going through Donald Trump's head when that has to actually happen on live television? What can I do next? <laughs> what can I push for next? I mean, you know, two seconds of thinking, yes, but then that, because that he wasn't, he wasn't really after just that birth certificate at all. He was, that's just a stepping stone. There's no, bullies never stop. They all, you know, they get one thing, they keep pushing because it's never enough and it, it wouldn't be. So in 2015, Donald Trump descends the golden escalator in Trump Tower to announce that he's running for president of the United States of America. What was your initial reaction when you heard this or saw this on the news? Uh, a couple of things. One, um, if when I saw his announcement, his sort of official announcement that he was going to be a candidate, I he came down the escalator, the famous ride down the escalator with his wife, Melania, to the lobby of Trump Tower, stepped to the microphone, and before he actually spoke the actual words that he was going to run for president, um, he went after uh, 
his competition. He said, they don't know how to run announcements. Theirs were just crappy. Their air conditioning didn't work and the rooms were too small. So they don't know how to do anything. Then he went on to talk to denounce immigrants, Mexicans, said they were criminals and rapists. So he had already kneecapped <laughs> all the competition, gone after immigrants, Mexicans, and then he finally gets to saying he's running. So it was, it was so vintage that he would start by putting everyone else on the defensive or another way of put saying that he pulls everybody onto his turf and then puts them on the defensive. So he pulls everybody in. And the first thing they have to respond with is like, but I'm not, but I didn't. Uh, and he's in the catbird seat. He's running the show. So it was a very different kind of uh, announcement than one might expect. The other thing, many thoughts I had, but the other, another main thought was, I never would actually do this because he would have to reveal his financials. He would have to let the world see what his tax returns are, which would be whatever they were, they would not be the stellar absolutely, you know, world uh, beater returns that he always said he had. He would not be a mega, mega, mega billionaire in the way that he had portrayed himself. Um, and I turned out to be wrong because I had he the when he was right and i didn't realize it i have you know certainly true he got it that he could get away with it and i didn't realize that and it wasn't even that i was wrong about him because in fact he would never reveal his financials i was dead right but i was wrong about the american public that people would let him get away with it that i hadn't figured and he had when you heard him use the now famous slogan, make America great again, what did you take it to mean? Well, make America white again. Uh, it was a, kind of a retread of Reagan. Uh, so there was that echo in it. And I think as important as the slogan was what it appeared on, namely red baseball caps, which was really shrewd. An everyday Joe Sixpack, inexpensive, iconic, immediately recognizable uh, item, and it took off. And Hillary Clinton, whatever she did or didn't have, did not have anything remotely as kind of instant, instantly recognizable, you know, instant um, declaration. Branding. Instant branding, exactly. He knows, he's very shrewd about that branding. I mean, I mentioned earlier that he had had 
a number of really lucky breaks that one of them was having this very, very successful father. Another one, a somewhat tarnished New York real estate developer to a TV star. And the third one, this is in reverse order, but anyway, the third one is his name. Trump is a very, very good name to have. Since it, his name means win, overcome. There's also this element of most people, when they look at someone who puts their name in giant gold letters on a building, there's like this tackiness element to it, if that makes sense. And 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 it kind of has the same, uh, when you look at like a, a generic red hat with like super boring typeface on it that says make America great again, it kind of evokes this, this similar tackiness, but it appeals to the same kind of person do you think that like there's this aspirational element of uh, uh someone who would look at a building you know this enormous building that says trump in big gold letters is gonna have the same appeal as the person who's gonna buy a a, a red hat that's got this tacky phrase on it um so you know over the years he's really kind of been appealing to that same demographic of people yeah I think they've been very successful. I'm not sure I would say that's the same demographic slice. I think it's actually somewhat different. But um, when he started out with his early real estate developing in, uh, in Manhattan, in New-, in New York, and in Manhattan, and then going to casinos, there was this very flashy, shiny, glittery, mirrored, um, over the top, very over the top. That was a very important component. Luxury in your face. Um, it was a it was a kind of like a cartoon version of success and enormous luxury, uh, enormous wealth. You know like one of the uh, bankers on the little cards in Monopoly, you know, (laughs) or or an icon on an advertisement for the lottery. Uh, Diamond ring, a black limousine, a woman in fur. That kind of instantly graspable idea of wealth. Uh, And... In his early days in Manhattan, the people that he was actually trying to get to his hotel to buy condos or co-ops in his buildings, uh, they were, I mean, that was real money. It was, that wasn't Joe Sixpack, but um, so he he was both luring people in who, who really did want to advertise their wealth and success and stature status and um and this was in a in a sort of in the mid 70s 80s when kind of an old money notion of being wealthy of living in a building that had a limestone facade of being kind of restrained of having you know not boasting about your money not boasting about how rich you were that was our idea of what it was to be wealthy not everyone but but largely he burst right through that. 
he wasn't going to be that kind of rich person. He was the kind of rich person that like waves it around in your face. And there were, he didn't have to have millions of people that would buy units in his apartments, in his buildings, or stay at his at a hotel with his name on it. He only needed so many. <laughs> you, don't, you don't need a million people if you're, if you're looking for people to put big money up. Um, so he wanted to, he certainly wanted to attract people who wanted to flaunt their wealth. At the same time, he then, or kind of a little bit as time went by, he then moved into the casino market in uh, New Jersey. That's where you did want to pull in people who didn't have enormous wealth necessarily, um, but would want to share in that kind of identity and for, to whom, who were attracted by all these kind of icons of success and wealth. Um, they were sort of like, if you won the, the lottery, what would you do? Well, maybe you'd get a limousine, maybe you'd get a diamond ring, maybe you'd get like a big fur coat. Um, <laughs> these kind of, you know, maybe you'd go sit under some palm trees. Uh, so he, he, he kind of, it was kind of, there were different constituencies that he was appealing to. Yeah, that's fair. And um, some who would want to be showing off that they were the kind of people who had the same kind of wealth. And then another group that wish they had that kind of money. And that's what they would do if they had the money. And so they would get, they could have a kind of virtual participation in that. Uh, by maybe going and eating at a restaurant in Trump Tower or going to Atlantic City and playing the slots or having some more, you know, something with a lower price tag, but that somehow or other was a kind of an aspirational thing for them. And I think that those the baseball hat really was aimed more at that larger, less uh, well-resourced demographic, but it was a kind of aspirational thing. By then, of course, it was some decades after Donald Trump began establishing that brand. And so there was also a really big part of that appeal was a kind of pushing back against the forces, the people, whoever they were, the elites, the immigrants, the Mexicans that had that had stood in their way so that they weren't actually wealthy themselves, but uh, that they were the one going, pushing back against all those forces that had kept them from having that kind of success. And this yeah, it kind of goes it kind of goes back to that, like capital O others mm-hmm. <laughs> that mm-hmm. we were talking about. Yeah. All the others that had uh, been responsible for their not having the success that they deserved. And Donald Trump was really, really good at harnessing that sense of grievance and betrayal and running with it. And Make America Great Again sounds, it's not too big of a leap. In fact, it's no leap at all to suggest that it had been great and some others had taken it had gotten in the way, had diverted that greatness, so we're going to take it back. 
How does a man with five children by three different wives who brags about grabbing women, claims he has nothing to be forgiven for, earn the trust and support of white evangelicals? $64 million question. Uh, and um, perhaps only God knows, really. Mm. But uh, a few thoughts are that there's a um, Donald Trump was certainly able to re- reference his own Protestant childhood. Granted, he hadn't been to church much in uh, quite a few decades, but he could legitimately talk about having been raised going to Sunday school. So there was some credibility with that. Um, And I think what was more to the point was that he was able to bring that recognition and celebrityhood to the evangelical world to share that. And this is a world that's long embraced big mega preachers and mega churches and very outspoken, charismatic, flamboyant uh, preacher voices. And Donald Trump was able to provide that, to provide that larger than life pacing back and forth in front of thousands of people, performative figure that has long rallied, and not just evangelicals, but we're talking about the evangelical world. So I think that 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 had a certain appeal. And what he was saying was that he would, a man who had previously not just been a womanizer, not just bragged about it. He had been in favor of legalized abortion and a lot of other things, uh, said he wasn't anymore. And he changed his mind and he'd seen the light. And that was good enough for them. The idea of having that agenda in the White House was really compelling. Yeah, well, it's interesting when we think about, you know, arguably where this kind of culmination started was with Ronald Reagan, who, as we all know, is a is a former TV star. You know, when we think about white evangelicalism's rise, that a lot of that came around, you know, televangelists and people who were on TV. Donald Trump really became the presence he was in the 2000s around The Apprentice, his time on television. And so there seems to be some corollary between being a television presence, being someone who can be recognized around at least America, if not the world, um, and to have him be in support of their goals, whether or not he truly believes in them, but he's at least vocalizing them on their behalf and you know sees it as being to his advantage— now, that seems to me to be a good reason for them to support him. Does that sound fair to you? 
Absolutely. He had become a major television star. A lot of evangelical ministers were major evangelical stars. It wasn't such a big leap uh, from seeing Donald Trump stand in, on, you know, on television, waving his arms around, and seeing standing on television, waving his arms around. Not, not perhaps such a big leap. There was also, I think, a contribution, speaking of Jerry Falwell Jr., that's made uh, along the way with Donald Trump's enforcer, Michael Cohen, um, telling Jerry Falwell Jr. that he better get right with Trump or uh, Jerry Falwell's um, unsavory personal life was going to um, be, be exposed to the public. It, it later was. But Jerry Falwell got to push it off for a few years uh, by um, suddenly embracing and embracing Donald Trump. There was also the distribution of the National Enquirer and all the stories they kept under wraps uh, at the behest of the owner um, in order to support Trump and with encouragement from Michael Cohen. Michael Cohen. So there were contributing pressures uh, that certainly helped. But I think that basic, that basic um, uh, mirroring and evangelical uh, televangelists was really, really critical. There was a moment in 2015. It actually may have been 2016 uh, when he spoke at Liberty University, the you know the the home of Jerry Falwell Jr., um, and gave a speech. and And a lot of critics look at that speech and see, you know, how silly is Donald Trump that he doesn't even know to say Second Corinthians instead of Two Corinthians. You know, a lot of people will will view that as the you know the small block of what he said and and immediately cast it aside. Um, but there's a lot of folks who look at that uh, that speech that he gave at Liberty um, as having a huge impact on white evangelical voters that they were willing to 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 set aside his his small blunder in and not knowing the name of a book of the Bible and saw him as you know a person who was willing to go to bat for white evangelicals and and in some of the conversations I've had with experts is there's this this idea of victimhood that Trump has really taken on and owned time and time again, that nothing is ever his fault, that it's other people who are seeking revenge against him because whether they're jealous of him or whether they're mad because he's more successful. And there's a lot of like victim language that seems to have accelerated his uh, success in white evangelicalism. Uh, Do you think that there's some resonance with that? Yes, Donald Trump has certainly harnessed the vocabulary and the, um, what should we say, the framing of victimhood uh, in innumerable times. And I think that that's been a real point of contact with uh, an, an, a uh, demographic who is, in fact, seeing their buying power 
go steadily down, has seen a lot of the industries they've worked in either shrink or even disappear altogether, whose um, kind of place in the American economy, in American society, become more constricted or to feel more constricted, to see that they are making less than their parents and that it's their children's uh, prospects don't look any better. I think there's an enormous sense of grievance and betrayal that he, Donald Trump, was readily picked up on and readily pointed the finger of blame elsewhere. And that kind of, he, as has we've said, we've heard repeatedly over the last four years, he's really good at kind of stoking, you know, throwing gasoline on the fire. He didn't make them, he didn't plant a seed that wasn't there already, but to mix metaphors, sorry, um, the, the seed was already there. The fire was the flame, you know, the embers were smoldering. Um, but he, very sharp on picking up on that and keeping it going. Uh, very, very uh, sharp on that. And he, he's known, maybe he was born knowing they're cliche, uh, but cliches are usually true um, or often true. Uh, you want a crowd, start a fight. And that's been his MO way, way, way early on. You want a crowd, start a fight, get a distraction going. Um, and he's been very, very good at that. There's a, there's an interesting, uh, you talking about not planting the seed. There's uh there's a biblical story, uh, that is in the new Testament where, you know, Paul, who was, you know, the writer of most of the new Testament, he talks about, uh, how his his predecessor planted the seed and he came along and watered the seed and the person who was to come after Paul would be the one to reap the benefits and to see all of that. And so, you know, there's an interesting parallel there where, you know, Donald Trump may not have been the one to plant that seed of, you know, of of victimhood or martyrdom in folks, but he certainly came with if not a, you know, if not a a garden hose, certainly a, a fire hydrant worth of water to to water that seed for sure. Um, fire hose for sure, yeah. Yeah. Um, I got two more questions for you. I appreciate your willingness to take some time with me. Um, I wanted to say one more thing there, which was... Um, yeah, please do. That Donald Trump also picked up on the secularization of much of American life, the lack of recognition, uh, as many who are churchgoers see it, um, to the role of religion in American life and the kind of resentment and the feeling of being pushed out of the public square, pushed out, pushed out of the media, pushed out of schools, pushed out of all the places that a significant number of people feel religion should be in, should be represented, should play a major role even. And that sense of exclusion and victimhood in that way, the lack of recognition, Trump 
absolutely picked up on that, that he was going to offer the kind of recognition and um, esteem and not just participation, but esteem and power uh, to these groups. And that they were, the, their sense of being wronged, he completely validated. Yeah, that's a, that's a very good, very good analysis on, on kind of what he was able to grab from that, from that voting block for sure. Um, Gallup reported some polling that showed that Trump received about 92% of the white evangelical vote in 2016. Does that number surprise you at all? Why wasn't it a hundred? <laughs> well, because I didn't vote for him. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, no, I mean, I, I don't know how, uh, if the needle will move in that, um, segment, if, or rather if, you know, history will move on and, other things will come to the fore, but there's a pretty solid lock there. And, uh, and a kind of, like, there's a cliche that I'm not quite remembering of, you know, sort of they're doubling down uh, of once you're in, you don't want to get out because then that would suggest that you shouldn't have gotten in in the first place. That's interesting. What can, what can the election and presidency of Donald Trump Tell us about the future of the Republican Party. Well, that's what Trump will mean in the long run, what his four years in office will mean in the long run. More so than I think, this is a possibly crazy thing to say, but uh, more so than with any other presidents in my lifetime. And I am quite old. so there've been a lot of presidents. Uh, I think there's so much we don't know. There's so much to be revealed. We hope that we might get a hand. We might get a you know, a whimoms on and get a look at, get to eyeball. For example, um, all the conversations with Putin that were put in super deep freeze under Trump. Biden has access to. Um, so what did get discussed? Uh, and ever from the get-go, Donald Trump was somebody who operated in secrecy, who with the people that worked for him when he had a little skeletal staff, uh, at the beginning of Trump Tower, um, no memos, no paper trail nothing written down, all oral. It was all done in, we don't want to, we can't quite say it was organized crime. We don't know that, but it's the way and the manner of crime syndicates, of the mafia, of organized organizations that you do not want to leave any trail, any evidence, any clues. Um, he, Trump himself, uh, didn't use email until very recently when he has no choice. Um, that made me seem at odds with somebody who seemed to be so public and, you know, tweeted morning, noon, and night, but those public tweets, it's a funny, I'll get back to that, but 
his business history was certainly one of covering up and certainly when he was in the White House, it's enormous amount. We never, we, there were no public records. There's no public records of including things like visitors to the White House, no public records of an enormous number of things that, pre, that traditionally and previously had been public. Um, and kind of parallel with that, he harnessed Twitter to give the appearance of being totally open and giving himself cover in a very interesting and effective way by saying that if he'd said it on Twitter, then it wasn't wrong, whatever it was, uh, he hadn't broken any law because he said it on Twitter uh, and it had been open. So therefore it wasn't illegal or immoral or anything. Um, and he had these kind of two, tra- two tracks going there where serious business, totally secret, things that were said publicly were somehow or other translated as into that meaning he wasn't responsible for it and it was perfectly fine, whatever it was. And I think those, when there's time to assess those, uh, will, there will be a lot that we didn't know. Yeah. Do you think he'll run again in 2024? I think he has to talk about running in 2024 in order to keep contributions coming in. I think he has to talk about running in 2024 so that in the hopes, at least for him, that that's how he will be thought of, not as the loser in 2020, but as a candidate in 2024. That's his preferred identity, along with 45th president, which he apparently is how he refers to himself, never former president. No, 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 no. Well, I mean, Joe Biden has to do the same thing, right? Even though most most people seem to understand that Joe Biden more than likely won't run again in 2024. He can't publicly say, I'm not going to run again in 2024 or all hell breaks loose. <laughs> so do you do you actually, th- he may say that he's going to, but do you think that he is going to run in 2024? He's looking at some pretty big debt. He's looking at a lot of, uh, you know, possible legal uh, complications coming around the bend. Uh, He's looking at a lot of um, corporations at the moment saying they won't support him. A lot of previous um, sources of uh, debate, uh, I'm sorry, of, of support, contributions. Many, many things seem closed off. Will they remain closed off? Can he leverage those 74 million voters? Will the impeachment um, hearings that are going on now, um, or the trial actually that's going on now, will, will this open up a wedge in that support? Um, will it crater? I think that there's too many things that are unknown and will other competition be able to emerge yeah i mean my state arkansas i mean tom cotton is is certainly a front runner to 
to be the presidential nominee on the Republican ticket. Um, and I think he has done quite a bit to try and toe that super duper thin line between I'm a Trump Republican, but I don't entirely condone what Trump has done over the last six months. Um, whereas someone like Josh Hawley, you know, may be seen more in, in line with, you know, the the heir apparent of Donald Trump were he not to run again. So I think the Republican Party is in a lot of trouble, regardless of what of, of who ends up being the nominee. Or is it? Uh, is is that um, when a crowd start a fight? Is is that the appeal of that kind of um, self confidence and certainty and insistence on being a winner and repetition? Loud, louder, 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 continuous 24-7 of fake news, stolen election, stop this deal. Those things have a very eroding um, impact and effect that's um, hard, hard, impossible to measure whether... Biden is Biden's in a race to be able to provide um, not slogans, but, you know, vaccinations, getting people back to normal, uh, all the many um, goals that were set during the campaign that he seems to be deeply engaged in trying to deliver on. And if he can deliver a palpable sense of change, normality, change, uh, a different, whole different environment and atmosphere, and not just optics. Um, can that change, move the needle away from those 74 million Trump voters? And it seems to me very unclear. Uh, and already ticking away efforts in, I believe it's 33 states to limit the vote, to, uh, yeah, to make the franchise smaller, to squeeze out new voters, voters who presumably would be voting Democratic, so I'm I would like to be optimistic but I don't think it's that clear. Yeah. Yeah, well if there's one thing that is clear it's that nothing is ever clear. <laughs> so, especially especially when it comes to politics. <laughs> Time and money uh those those are pretty hard to you know fend off and make an end run around forever. Can Trump, who looks like a candidate for a heart attack, uh, <laughs> can, can he fend them off? We'll see. Yeah. Uh, I think that's a good place to end it. Uh, Gwenda, I'm very grateful for your time. Thanks oh, for- Oh, uh, it's a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. You're welcome. So long. So, all right. 
Bye-bye. Thanks for checking out the Deluxe Edition. Make sure to subscribe to the newsletter. You can do that at the link in the show notes. Our theme song is Apophenia by Ross Christopher. Next week features arguably one of the most impactful conversations I had during my research. We hear from Robert P. Jones. Jones.